Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to introduce Isabel Hilton to the podcast. Isabel is a London-based international journalist and broadcaster. She's founder and editor of ChinaDialogue.net, a non-profit, fully bilingual online publication based in London, Beijing and Delhi that focuses on the environment and climate change. She's the author and co-author of several books and was awarded the OBE for her work in raising environmental awareness in China. Thank you very much, Isabel, for taking the time to speak today to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Uh, It's a great pleasure. So I'm looking forward to talking to you about the great work you do at China Dialogue. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and how uh, China Dialogue came into being? Uh, I'm a journalist and um, I, I'm, I'm a journalist who, out of perverse curiosity, really, uh, started to study Chinese very early. So when I was 17, I was in the States uh, on a scholarship and I was a little bit bored. And so I decided to try to teach myself Chinese and I did that for a year. Then I did a degree in Chinese. Then I went to university in China. All of this at a time when people thought it was very eccentric and that, you know, I should be doing something more useful. Um, I became a journalist, worked in uh, radio, worked in television, worked in print. And then 12 years ago, uh, I, having covered all sorts of different parts of the world, you know, China was by then very big. The economy had you know, gone through its big expansion and it no longer looked eccentric to be involved with China. A lot of people were involved with China who didn't really uh, have any background in Chinese. And there was a particularly negative conversation going on with China around climate change and environment. So if you were in London or New York, Uh, you would look at China, which was about to become the world's biggest emitter of carbon, and you would think, well, what's the point in my changing my light bulbs when China's building coal-fired power stations at this fantastic rate? And if you were in China, if you were in Beijing, and you looked at the per capita emissions, for example, of developed countries, you would say, well, you know, they're emitting far more than we are on a per capita basis. So why should we sacrifice our development for, you know, when they're not willing to give up their lifestyles at all. This was a pretty negative uh, interaction. And I and and some friends thought maybe we could at least contribute a platform in which these things could be explored. And perhaps we could get people onto the same page in the way of thinking, look, there isn't a planet B, as Macron said the other day. So however much we stand on our respective rights and dignities, the problem remains. So we have to get to a better place. And that's really how China Dialogue was born. Yes, yes. And, and you mentioned at the time it was becoming about to become the, the, you know, the world's uh, greatest emitter. Um, and uh, today it's become a major, uh, clearly is a major actor, uh, environmental actor, uh, and, and has leadership role in, 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 in many ways. I'm just wondering whether you could maybe give an overview of, uh, you know, how uh, the Chinese approach maybe has changed, I mean, over the last 12 years at a very high level, of course. 
Yeah, it's changed a lot. Uh, when we when we first set up, I think the view in China was we can't afford environmentalism. That's a rich country indulgence. And, you know, we'll clean up when we get rich. But already in the mid 2000s, there were people who were very kind of percipient and farsighted people who were saying, look, you know, China doesn't have the headroom to do that. China has an enormous population on relatively uh, small area of land. It's uh, very short of, of key resources like water and so on. So, so China doesn't have the space to do that. We have to get to a more sustainable model. Not much attention was paid for another few years, but eventually just the environmental crisis that, that had been building up over the years of, of rapid industrialization. So that's a water crisis and particularly an air pollution crisis, which hit the East Coast cities, made it into a kind of political imperative. That plus the fact that that economic model was running out of steam. So, you know, you can only go so far on your big catch up, you know, inefficient, heavily emitting industries. And then you price yourself out of the market, which is what was happening to China by the time the 12th five-year plan was kind of halfway through. So you begin to see ideas of sustainability, of circular economy, of ecology beginning to make their way, as it were, from the street and from the fringe into central policy as Chinese leadership understood that, you know, they couldn't go on like this, that that, that they were just didn't have the resources, it was all going to collapse, and they had to have a better model. So now we have at a very high level uh, a principle called eco-civilization, which has emerged from all these discussions, which aims to put China on a cleaner track. There's an opportunist element in this also, uh, in that, you know, if you have to move up the technology chain, you look at what are the technologies of the future. And China identified the low carbon technologies fairly early on as technologies that were going to provide perhaps a way for China to make a living in the next uh, few decades and became dominant in wind and solar and, and, and is now working on electric vehicles and all those things. Great, great. So eco-civilization. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the elements that are included in that? And I suppose... Um, China's in a unique situation um, in terms of the, the, the government control and its ability to um, uh, manipulate levers to make change happen. It is in some ways. Um, and, and, but there is, a, there is a bit of a misunderstanding about what uh, a top-down authoritarian model can actually achieve. It can achieve some things very uh, directly. So if you have an enormous infrastructure project, for example, it, that's pretty easy because you don't have to worry about the people that you're going to inconvenience or displace or, or you know, otherwise harm. You, know, you can just pretty much steamroll over them um, in a way that you can't do in a more uh, thoughtful and and, uh, more participatory system. However, what China has problems with is is getting officials to to act out policies that officials at all sorts of levels in China don't see as directly in their interests. So, the local officials had um, several obligations. You know, they they get set tasks and and objectives under the under the current plan. And for many years, growing the local economy and keeping the peace and all those things were very highly scored in terms of an official's kind of ranking for promotion. So they were given priority. Environment uh, was on there, but there were no consequences really to failing to looking uh, to looking uh, to look after the environment in the 
way that there were consequences for failing to grow the economy or allowing a major riot to happen on your patch. So although, you know, formally it was in the list of duties, it was always the neglected uh, part of the list because it didn't really count for your promotion. So what you got was a system in which there were lots of good rules, good laws, good intentions. And and the further you got from the center of power, the more they were ignored and the more um, the more the, the local officials would just lie to the boss about the environmental achievement. And they would know that probably by the time all the bad effects of their policies came home to roost, they would have moved on to another patch anyway, and it would never catch up with them. So, so the problem in implementing policy was that local officials gave greater weight to growing the economy or keeping the peace. And in any event, if there were bad environmental effects of, of what they'd done, they could be pretty sure that they would have moved on by the time they came to, you know, the chickens came home to roost and it would never really catch up with them. So that's the problem with a top-down authoritarian regime. It can do some things well, but there are other things that it really can't do well. Now, the things that it could do well, which is building all the infrastructure, were very important for the first couple of decades of China's development from the 90s on. That's what they did. They built roads, bridges, airports. They they built new cities. They did all of those things. And those, you know, those things happened. What didn't happen was any kind of environmental control along the way. So by the time you finish this rapid growth era, you have pretty, you're looking at extremely severe environmental effects. And then you have to figure out, without changing the top-down system, how do you get how do you get all those thousands of officials across the country to change their behavior and to, to care more about the environment? And that's the problem that they have. And it's made worse by the fact that you know, the kind of things that there are always in any society, you have a conflict of interest between industry, for example, and civil society. But in society, in places, in countries where or political systems where civil society has has rights, where it can use the law, where it can use public opinion, you know, it's a much more even battle. In China, civil society is very weak. Uh, it can't use the law to any great effect. And um, the press is very tightly controlled, often by the local officials who are poisoning the environment. So you can see that you, they don't have very many tools. And that's a dilemma still for China. Yes, yes. And to what extent, um, I mean, how, how bad is the environmental situation in China? I, I guess the, the, the local and regional aspect. And then I'd be interested in to what extent they uh, care about more global issues like, like, like climate change. Well, the, environmentally, they have uh, they have a number of, of problems. I mean, essentially, there's a very large population trying to live on a relatively small allocation of usable land. And an awful lot of that land, although quite how much and to what degree is still a state secret, but a lot of that land has been poisoned by bad industrial practice, essentially. Um, the other big problem is water. There's, a, there's a, a not very generous per capita allocation of fresh water in China, and, and it's very unevenly distributed. So if you're south of the Yangtze River, you probably get too much water and you get major floods and, and that kind of thing. If you're north of the, of the Yangtze, uh, you're living in uh, a part of China that grows increasingly arid as you head north and west. 
And that is a part of China that produces about 40% of the GDP. You know, it's an extremely important part of China. It has major cities like Beijing, for example, and major industrialized provinces like, like Hebei. Um, and all of those are teetering on the edge of a, a water crisis all the time. And then when you add to that a legacy of coal-fired power stations in particular, there's been quite a lot of cleaning up of coal in China in the sense that the new coal-fired power stations that have been built in the last decade have been far more efficient than the than the old ones and they emit far less. But nevertheless, coal-fired power stations, you know, produce uh, noxious uh, air. And so China has been suffering from a really, really severe air pollution, and particularly over the winter when the heating systems all kick in uh, for, for quite a long time now. And it's going to take quite a long time to clean it up. The result of that is that your, your life expectancy, if you live in North China, is six years less than if you live in South China. And, you know, about 300,000 people, according to the WHO, die prematurely in China because of air pollution. You have other health effects. Um, there has been a real explosion of cancers of various kinds, mostly to do with, you know, the various chemical loads in the environment. Um, so it's a it's a pretty difficult situation. Added to that, the poisoning of the coastal waters from from runoff of of um, including from overuse of nitrogen from plastic pollution, uh, from various other chemical uh, runoffs, has meant that the coastal waters of China, which used to be very rich in, in fish, are now very, very depleted. And China, that has driven China's fishing fleet further and further out across the world, where it is now a, a big problem in IUU fishing around the world. You asked how much China cares about its responsibility to the rest of the world, which is, I suppose, largely a climate question. I think that we could say from maybe five years ago, the approach has has definitely evolved. And one of the key moments was the Obama-Xi Jinping agreement on climate when they got together they agreed that they had a kind of common purpose in controlling climate change or mitigating climate change and that they would work together towards a Paris agreement. And they did. And that was very important because China signed up to Paris. Its targets are not particularly strenuous. They will meet them. Um, it, China needs to ratchet them up. But it positioned China as a potentially positive force in international climate diplomacy, whereas previously it had been pretty much a naysayer, you know, doing the minimum, making life difficult. Uh, whereas whereas now it's, it's, you know, after Trump announced that the United States would pull out, everyone kind of looked to China for leadership, which perhaps... China wasn't quite ready for, but it, it's, a, it's a signal about uh, how much uh, things have changed. Very interesting. When you say it's not quite ready for, what, what do you mean there, Isabel? Uh, China is, you know, as a global actor, is very much on a, on a learning curve. And, you know, people talk about U.S. climate leadership, but anyone in the climate business, you know, would look at the U.S. emissions and U.S. behavior over the years. And you say, well, I'm not really sure this is leadership. But when the United States 
puts its mind to mobilizing international opinion, at least until this administration, it was very effective. So when the Obama administration threw its diplomatic weight into the Paris Agreement, that had a tremendous impact on on just getting everybody lined up. Now, China doesn't have that tradition. It doesn't have those skills. It doesn't have that diplomatic service. And it has very little experience in mobilizing others. China's always preferred to do, you know, bilateral deals with smaller countries or to work in the UN as a kind of, you know, slightly passive player. So that kind of leadership, China absolutely is not ready to substitute. Where it does exercise a kind of leadership is that it's just so big that when it puts its mind, for example, to growing a renewables uh, industry, it grows a very big one. And it brings all those skills of high volume manufacture to bear. And it lowers the price of solar panels substantially, as it has done. And that changes the cost, uh, you know, the cost benefit balance of renewables versus um, uh, fossil fuels radically. And that offers countries that are still building their energy systems the opportunity to go a much more sustainable route uh, than would otherwise be the case. So China's leadership is not so much in the political or diplomatic leadership, but it's in using its strengths in very well-organized manufacturing to uh, advance uh, global goods. Right. Now, you mentioned that um, uh, one area where it's not been so successful, the top-down approach is engaging regional, local officials to uh, look after the environment. To what extent are they uh, getting around that question? Are they, getting, are, are, are they starting to be successful in working out ways to you know, make change happen at a local and regional level? Well, you can see them trying. I think it's a little early to tell. Um, but the system till now has been, you know, the environment, as I said, was was a low priority issue for uh, a local uh, for a local official. Um, and the and the Ministry of Environmental Protection, which was supposed to police all these rules and regulations and laws was very small, very underfunded and very weak. Now, that's not unusual. You know, if you look at if you were to pitch the British Treasury against the, you know, environment um, uh, authorities here, you would find that the Treasury was a very tough opponent. And that was certainly true in China. So ministries of industry, et cetera, et cetera. Added to that, since things hadn't really been organized around environmental protection, what such protections as there were were, were fragmented across uh, many ministries. So, for example, in dealing with water, which is a key national uh, problem in China, you had nine different ministries and it was almost impossible to coordinate a sensible approach across nine ministries who are by nature competitive. In addition to that, historically, the local environmental protection bureaus were, were paid for by the local author- authorities. So at a provincial level, you know, the provincial government had control of them. And since the provincial government was also an industrial actor and a kind of development actor and a, an economic and political actor, you, it, didn't, it doesn't take much to see that the local environmental protection bureau is pretty much under the thumb of the people that it's meant to be regulating. So all of that worked the wrong way. 
And if you looked at the laws until relatively recently, it was just cheaper to go on polluting water than it was to install and run uh, any kind of wastewater purification because the fines were so small that even if you were caught and even if you were taken to court, to, to, to court and, and found guilty, you could pay the fine. And, and it was just like a very small business tax. But that didn't actually help the water. Now, over the last few years, China's been trying to address this kind of administrative model. So there was a new water law, which meant that the fines are now large and get larger every day. Uh, you know, they're trying to change the balance of advantage and actually finally to make the polluters pay in China because they just haven't been paying for the last 20 to 30 years. Now, in order to make the polluters pay, you've got to catch them. And that was the next problem. You know, you don't have a free press, you don't have a free civil society. So you're relying on one government agency being able to to monitor and to and to prosecute all the others. And that's a problem. So they used to send out inspection teams. But previously, the ministry inspection teams were of a lower bureaucratic level than the people that they were inspecting. And given that this is a very hierarchical society, they didn't really make, you know, they didn't get anywhere. They just got ignored. But about two years ago, they began uh, sending out far higher level inspection teams, you know, with kind of, you know, serious party backing. And uh, they were able to do a lot more work. And what they discovered was truly horrific, that essentially everybody was cheating. Everybody was, was, you know, submitting false reports, meetings that had never happened, policies that were supposed to be in place that were never enacted. And and they discovered that, you know, a lot of the environmental protection system that, that everyone thought was in place was it was a sham. It just and even in big cities like Tianjin, they discovered this. So there's a lot to put right. The next step was to upgrade the Ministry of Environmental Protection. It's now had its budget doubled. It's had, you know, it'll have its staff doubled and it's being recognized as a much more powerful entity. So we'll see. This has only just happened uh, and it has a very, very big job on. So we'll see. But it, you can see that they're trying to make the system work. And another key thing they did was to say to all the officials who previously had been able to escape the consequences of the environmental damage they'd done, that their environmental record would follow them for life. So if they did destroy a lake when they were 25, you know, when they were 40, this would still be held against them. So, you know, you can see them trying and we just have to wish them luck. Work in progress. I think that's quite an interesting policy, which could be uh, utilised here in in, uh, in maybe in, in Britain or in, in, in America, in the, in the banking system and other places yes, like that. Example. Yes. Or, or yes, in politics. Actually. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Can you tell me what's going on in China with respect to carbon trading? Isabel. Well, in carbon trading, uh, there were some very, very bold announcements um, a few years back that we were going to have a fairly comprehensive carbon trading system, you know, by the end of, I think, 2016, it first said. So they set up a number of pilot projects. It, it, it turned out to be rather more complicated. And now we're getting uh, a, an ET, a trading system, which is only um, energy sector. So, so the other sectors are being put aside for now. 
and it won't really come into full operation until about 2020. So they've been doing a lot of the preliminary work, you know, the, the setting up of the inventories, the, the, the setting up of the pilots. And we'll see. I mean, they've, they've worked quite closely with the European Union. And as you know, the European Union trading system has always suffered from a more too, too generous allocation of, of credits and, you know, a low price. And it hasn't actually saved any carbon in all these years. Um, so there, ha- there is an opportunity for China here if they can avoid some of those mistakes. Um, it, again, it's a little early to tell. Um, a lot of there are a lot of thinkers in China who would have preferred a tax to a trading system, um, but we seem to be you know going down the trading route. Um, even focused only on the energy sector, it will still be the world's biggest carbon trading scheme. So uh, it's about 1.7 times bigger than the EU um, trading scheme, and uh, you know you're looking at 3.3 billion tons of carbon annually just from that sector. So we'll see. I hope it. I hope they can make it work better than Europe did. Um, at least what the, what the, in the process of trying to get the the system off the ground, they've learned a lot about what's going on in China, and they've done a lot of basic work. They they will have better data, um, and you know. So so that's that's all positive. Yes, and ecosystem services. Ecosystem services were were I think piloted in um, in terms of river management, particularly the Yellow River. You know, the Yellow River, which is the mother river of China and the most northerly of the great rivers, stopped reaching the sea in the early two thousands or or late nineteen nineties. And this was a tremendous shock for China. It's absolutely, it's horribly degraded from over-extraction, from degradation of the of the headwaters on the Qinghai-Tibet Plateau. And uh, the, they piloted a, a, a system whereby the lower riparians essentially would pay the upper riparians to rehabilitate the headwaters. And there has been... You know, some progress. The Yellow River is definitely in better shape than it was. So, you know, that that does that does work as an approach. It works to take a whole river basin approach and it's as a way of financing rehabilitation and motivating upper riparians to take care of the headwaters. It seems to have been quite effective. Right, right. And uh, just talking about the government, then uh, one other uh, area I'd be interested in, and recently uh, China's ban on foreign waste. Can you talk a little bit about the implications and maybe and motivations for that? Importing foreign waste is um, is the kind of, I guess it's the kind of thing you do in, in the early stages of your uh, industrial revolution. It wasn't, it wasn't just plastic waste. They also import an awful lot of electronic waste because you have a lot of relatively cheap labor. The methods of dealing with it were pretty primitive. And, and actually, the, the waste itself uh, was, was pretty um, – it was pretty poor in the sense that it, it tended to arrive unsorted and only about 10% of it was recoverable. So one result was that China ended up with an awful lot of plastic waste that, that then simply got dumped or incinerated. So it created a, a further problem for China. There was some attention was given about two years ago to the conditions in which people worked in this industry. And that caused a a real shock to the public in China. There was a documentary called Plastic China, which appeared briefly, was then suppressed. But it flagged up 
that this was an issue that the government had to think about. And then China was identified as one of the major sources of ocean plastic uh, waste. And that also is embarrassing for China. So by the end of last year, we had an edict which um, banned the imports of 24 types of, of waste, which is, again, setting up a problem for advanced countries that simply have been dumping their plastic waste on China and causing it recycling, which, you know, it wasn't actually. It was it was pretty much dumping so it's it's a very positive move in my view and it will make advanced countries be far more responsible about how they create their plastic what kind of plastic that's in use cutting down on single use plastic and so on and so forth the thing to worry about is how far they will simply look for another china you know to find another poor country which would still accept the waste and do it that way and and it would be done in conditions that are as bad or or worse than in China. So I think it now puts the responsibility back on the exporting countries to deal with their waste far more responsibly and, you know, give China a chance to deal with its own waste, which is already pretty considerable and poorly dealt with. And, you know, that that would be a better result for the ocean and for everybody. So you, you mentioned the uh, sheer scale of uh, China's economic activity and how if they move into a sector that they can really move the needle. And we've seen this already with solar um, and, and you see new projects, uh, electric buses, uh, things like that. Are there one or two areas where you, you see on the horizon a uh, big impact in that way? China's investing. If you if you read the 13 five-year plan, I'm sure it's your favorite bedtime reading, Virgo. <laughs> yeah, but it's kind of interesting if you if you see the strategic investments that China made uh, in that plan, and it includes everything to do with electric transportation. So batteries, in particular, uh, China has a, a a car industry which is being encouraged and subsidized to produce uh, electric vehicles. And China has the advantage that it can experiment at scale in its domestic market and it can create a domestic market for electric vehicles. So it gets a big chance to practice, you know, and even though they might not be as uh, advanced as a Tesla, they'll be a lot cheaper and they will have a market. So in China now, if you're trying to buy, if you live in Shanghai or Beijing and you want to buy a conventional car, you can buy the car, but you can't get a license plate unless you pay almost as much as the car, you know, for the license plate. So, so that's how they control the market. If you buy an electric car, then you can be on the road the next day. So, you know, you can see all this kind of will have a major impact. Other than that, China, like like other countries, has had a long running and slightly unconvincing experiment with carbon capture and storage um, that I don't think is going to offer a, a great deal. It is very it has invested heavily in nuclear, um, you know, the, the kind of renewable sector, which which is fairly predictable and the electric vehicle sector, I think, is where we will see. Um, improvements at scale. In addition to that, it, China is experimenting with eco-cities. They're still building cities. And there's a, a new, quite a, quite strategic new city, which is going to be Xi Jinping's kind of hallmark. It's called Shung'an New Area. And it's partly to absorb the overspill from Beijing and, and Hebei. 
And that is to be built as uh, the first um, net zero city, you know, kind of completely renewable city. We'll see. China has had eco city announcements before and, you know, it doesn't always work out. But this process of experimentation is just part of Chinese policy. So something will come out of it. Less encouraging is China's expansion into the world with the Belt and Road Project, because a lot of that is about exporting surplus capacity in the rather traditional, much dirtier industries. So cement and steel and building dams and all those things that, you know, uh, uh, they have a saturated market at home and building coal-fired power stations all across Southeast Asia, which is really... um, really in contradiction both to the Paris commitments of the host countries, but also to China's declared position on climate change. So, you know, in a country the size of China, you have or you also have vested interests. And the policy sometimes is to try to just, you know, give the vested interests some space rather than confront them. So instead of closing down this surplus capacity, China is exporting a fair bit of it outside China. And and that's not a particularly helpful policy. Yes, these coal-fired power uh, stations um, are still proliferating. Yes, they are. And China is investing in an awful lot of them, not just in Southeast Asia. They're, they're doing it in Europe, too, uh, where where in case, you know, in fact, in the building, helping to build a couple of lignite power stations, which is extremely unhelpful at this point. Because, you know, if, if, a, if a new power station is expected to last 30 or 40 years, it takes us well past the mid-century point where we're supposed to be net zero. And, you know, that'll leave the host countries either with a stranded asset or in or bre- in breach of their Paris commitments. It locks them into a high carbon trajectory. And that's extraordinarily unhelpful at this point. Does that overwhelm its other environmental commitments? Well, it's certainly it's something to set on the other side of the balance sheet. And, uh, you know, one could wish that China was slightly less big and less powerful. If you look at that aspect of things. Um, it's not that host countries don't also have a responsibility here, but, you know, China China has a tremendous capacity to manufacture renewables. And it would be, I personally would find it far more encouraging if Chinese finance would declare that it wouldn't invest in coal as, you know, other financial, international and multilateral financial institutions have said or, and, or that it would prioritize renewables. None of those things have happened. So, you know, it, Chinese policy is, is, is very like the curate's egg. Uh, it, it's a very, very large curate's egg. It's good in parts, but it's not comprehensively good. And what would it take, do you think, for the Chinese government to take action on this? I mean, you mentioned finance. To what extent is that independent of the Chinese government? Not at all. You know, the Chinese, you know, if you are a, a policy bank or, or even AIIB, you, you are you are following the party's uh, directives and the party's interests. And it's it's not independent of government. So the government could, uh, you know, direct the the banks uh, and the other the development bank and, and the and the investment banks. You, they could direct them to fall in line with the principles of eco civilization. They have not as yet done that. And, you know, I guess 
what you're looking at is a political system that's trying to balance powerful interests domestically and where the fallout of poor behavior abroad is less than the fallout of poor behavior at home. So they're taking slightly the easiest route there or the path of least resistance. They could do better. Yes, they could do better. What lessons are there for other countries um, that, uh, in, in China's approach? I think the United States could, particularly the current administration, could learn from the fact that China sees the future in low carbon technologies. Um, It would be a very, very good lesson for the current White House to learn rather than trying to prop up 19th century technologies. It could we could learn from experiments in the circular economy. We could learn from the perception that, you know, a leaner, greener economy is a good thing. It's not just a good thing morally and ethically, but it's a good thing economically. You know, instead of of trying to prop up dying or sunset industries, we should be looking to the future and trying to out-innovate China rather than uh, trying to block uh, China's innovation. So I think those are lessons that developed countries could learn. Many of them have. Unfortunately, the United States is currently, at least in in White House terms, going in the other direction. For developing economies, I think the lessons or emerging economies, I think the lessons of China's growth pattern are largely negative. You know, the the developers clean up later approach has left China with a terrible toxic legacy, some of which will never be cleaned up. It really is extraordinarily difficult and expensive to clean up soil, for example. And and the degradation of China's uh, agricultural capacity is very serious. So I think that they should learn from the later stages of China's development when the realization, you know, settled uh, that this is perhaps the wrong approach. And they should take advantage of what China does offer in cheaper renewables and in the understanding of the importance of recovering uh, very valuable materials at the end of their life and plugging them back in, all that, you know, approach to the circular economy could be just as useful for emerging economies as, as it is for advanced economies. What's next for China? That's a simple question. But I'm just wondering, on the horizon, uh, what do you think is important? Looking forward, what should we keep our eyes on to gauge China's ongoing environmental commitment? The, the things that I would look at, um, we, we're very concerned about the state of the oceans. We have a, a website called ChinaDialogueOcean.net. And China's behavior in the deep sea, in you know the, the behavior of its distant water fishing fleet, its approach to ocean resources, I think could do with, with a little improvement. So I think the degree to which eco-civilization applies to the global commons would be something to judge China by. It's it's. It's taking some steps uh, towards cleaning up its coastal waters, uh, but there's still a very fairly kind of exploitative approach uh, to the global commons. I would watch that one. I would also probably watch, um, I'm very interested to see how much the administrative reorganization really does make policy more effective. I mean, at the moment, I think we're entering a, Uh, a phase of renewed authoritarianism in China. So it's not likely that the rule of law will improve. It's not likely that civil society will get stronger or the press will get any more freedom. So they are really 
you know, put it, betting the farm on being able to manage this through administration and, you know, sanctions and punishments and, and inspections. Well, well, I would be interested to, to see how effective that is. Um, I'd also be very encouraged if China were to take a, a more proactive position in terms of its Paris commitments. As I said, they're very loose at the moment, and China tends to like to make rather low promises and, and over-fulfill them rather than promising high and falling short. But, you know, where we are now in the Paris process, everybody needs to step up and be more ambitious. And I think it would be great. It would be a fantastic signal of Chinese capacity to lead if China were to uh, ratchet up its commitments in, uh, you know, an impressive fashion. And I think that would certainly inspire others to do so. What are the chances of that, Isabel? <laughs> never say never. <laughs> <laughs> What's next for China Dialogue? We, you know, since we started 12 years ago, and we started really just as a kind of bilateral conversation with China. Since then, China has got out into the world and we now are running, I find myself running five websites. So we have one that deals with transboundary water in the Indian subcontinent. We have an India climate site. We have an ocean site. We have a China in Latin America website. And I think that a lot of people don't realize actually how much we've grown. We publish in eight languages now. And I think that probably what we uh, will do next is somehow to bring them together into a more global platform where people can go to understand China's impact on the world. And I think that's something that we're all going to have to do in the next 10, 20 years. So that's probably our next step. Well, I wish you the very best of success with that, Isabel. And thank you so much for taking the time to share the great work you're doing and uh, those fascinating in insights into what's happening in China today and hopefully the near future. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks for, thanks for the invitation. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. 